Hey, it's Josh Benson with There's No Business Like. My favorite thing about conferences is getting to be around like-minded people, the networking, the opportunities to meet new people in the industry. There are so many new people in the industry right now. And at the upcoming Midwest Arts Expo, we have the opportunity through plenty of networking events to meet all these new people that are coming into the industry and to welcome them in, to get to know people in the industry that you don't already know, and to just spend time with like-minded people. That's what I'm looking forward to the most. Come and see us. We have a booth for There's No Business Like at the Midwest Arts Expo, booth 251. Come see us in Indianapolis, September 18th through the 21st. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. We are so excited to have the third in our series of Interpod Squad interviews with our very good friend, Brian Zelmer. And my co-host for today is the multidimensional, multi-talented Josh Benson. Well, that's an awful lot of compliment, but thank you. <laughs> Josh Benson here from Marion, Illinois. And I'm, if you didn't know already, I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts. And we want to welcome Brian. Hey, guys. Brian Zelmer, KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. So, Brian, first thing. Uh, in your own words, how do you know Josh and I and what are your favorite things about us? Katie, I met you during the pandemic. We were both presidents of our state's arts consortiums. So we, we met on these uh, PLC meetings, Presenters Leadership Consortium. And then fast forward like a year, was it one year or two years later? Probably yeah. two. Uh, we met in person for the first time in Florida at the Art Summit where we actually got the idea of doing this podcast. So it uh, hasn't been very long for you and I. Josh, on the other hand, is a bit longer. It's been many years. I don't even know what year we met, but we'd each known an artist named Dina Blizzard separately for years. And Dina, every time I saw Dina, she was like, oh, have you met Josh Benson yet? You need to be hanging out with him. For some reason in her mind, she called him my doppelganger. And the more I know Josh, it's like, I don't know how Dina saw that, but um, <laughs> I'm glad that she eventually <laughs> did connect us at an APAP. And we all went out to dinner. It was, I think, her, Pat Hazel, Josh, and I. We went out to dinner, and then I haven't stopped hanging out with Josh since. I love what everyone in the podcast brings. I just love how different we are. Like, my background's theater, and I've always loved having, like, people around me that each have their own different personality and but have a sense of humor and a sense of wanting to lift each other up and support each other no matter what. Almost like unconditional love like you'd have for family. And I just, I feel that from both of you. I feel like you've both you know, been in my corner when I've had a bad day and lifted me up. You both helped me through some, you know, things that I can't figure out sometimes. And other times you're just, you know, you're always there for me. And that's, I just love that about you guys. And, and I love trying to reciprocate the best I can. And, you know, we, we are there for each other. It sounds like he doesn't pay atten enough attention to be able to actually pick out anything specific <laughs> about either one of us that he likes. I hate doing that. No. I think I feel because then, no. like, I'll I might do really good on one person, and then the other person be like, "Oh, thanks. That's all he thinks." Yeah. <laughs> no. So, so I try to avoid those things. Oh, I totally understand it. Well, Brian, that is so kind of you to say, and we love you too. Yeah. And after I threw up in my mouth, that was great. 
<laughs> I was waiting for that. I knew that was in the bank. <laughs> uh, and we love you too. And we appreciate your friendship and we appreciate everything that you bring to, to our friend group as well. Um, so now, I mean, enough about Josh and I, I think we should actually get into talking about I don't about know. You. Maybe we should talk about us some more. <laughs> <laughs> so Josh, what do you, where do you want to start with Brian? Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about your family? Before we get into your origin story in the arts, tell us about your family life. So I've been married to my wife, Carla, for 23 years, and we have four children, ages 19 to nine, three boys and a girl. They all have followed in your footsteps, right? They are all very artistic? Not so much my footsteps. I mean, they are all involved in the arts in one way or the other, but... All four of them have grown up in my wife's dance studio dancing, and they all love that. And they each play instruments. They all play string instruments. Uh, my oldest plays cello, then uh, two of them play violin, and one plays bass. But only my second son seems to be interested in like pursuing a career in it. He's 16 now, and he's talking about wanting to go to college for theater. So we'll see. Uh, you know, you never know. At that age, you can change your mind. You know, in a day, but. Uh, or multiple times in a day, but so far that's been pretty consistent. I feel like you're pointing at me there. <laughs> <laughs> I just really love that, like you have made the arts a part of their lives, you know, in some way, shape or form. I think that's so valuable and a testament to you and your wife and, and your passions too, and passing those along to your kids. Well, it was inevitable because my wife is a professional, a former professional ballet dancer and she has a dance studio, as I mentioned. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously an arts administrator, so they've been around it their whole lives. And my wife and I always said when we start having kids, we're like, they're either going to join us and be in the arts too, or they're going to rebel and be the opposite. We always said accountants, but so far my oldest, uh, it seems to be going into sales. He's a manager of a furniture store, which we're really proud of him, but it couldn't be more opposite of the arts than that. <laughs> so true. Well, I love getting to know a little bit more about your family and your amazing brood of children. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's nice to honestly work with other parents, you know, in the arts and, and have these kinds of, of conversations and get to know other parents and and how they are instilling the values of the arts in their kids. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin story where you got started in the arts and, and how that progressed for you? So I started out pursuing an onstage career as a performer in high school and college. I sang in choirs. I acted in plays and musicals. And I was also in a rock band and these things might all seem related, you know, arts related, but they actually, uh, each of them split my attention and focus quite a bit and they kind of competed with one another. So it came to a head sometime in my second or third year in community college. Um, and I had, I kind of was put in a position where I had to make a choice. I'm not sure if I made the right choice or the wrong choice. I go back and forth almost daily, even now, not that I have regrets necessarily, but um, anyway, I ended up making the decision of just focusing on theater at that point. I should also mention in my last year of community college is when I met my now wife. And I already mentioned that she was a professional ballet dancer. Well, uh, she was hired to choreograph a show that I was doing that year. And we started dating. And, and a while later, she got into Colorado Ballet and asked me to move to Denver with her. Uh, which I did. And I ended up attending Metro State to complete my bachelor's in theater, but it was required to have a minor and I had no idea what to minor in. So I spoke with my advisor. She said I should probably look into doing a business class and specifically to take marketing. I did. And strangely, at least to me, I fell in love with marketing and so much so that I almost switched majors or double majored. But um, it was really a timing decision why I just ended up minoring in it because my wife got injured and we both agreed that someday when she stopped dancing, that we would move back to the East Coast and start a family. So 
I graduated, we moved back east, and I immediately attended Wilkes University, where I earned my MBA in entrepreneurship and marketing. And while I was at graduate school, I worked at a marketing department of a 10,000-seat amphitheater and a casino lounge. And then eventually, I just decided to step away from arts altogether uh, and pursue the quote-unquote corporate path. I ultimately made it to a position of marketing director of a boutique advertising agency in New York, where I found myself pretty miserable, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I still love the principles of marketing. I just didn't have the passion for working in it. And really, I missed the arts is what it came down to. As luck would have it, at the same time that this realization hit me, Sussex County Community College in New Jersey uh, was just built a brand new theater, a performing arts center, and they were looking for someone to run it. I applied, I got the job, and I was the director of the Performing Arts Center there for uh, seven years. And then I went on to Loveland, Colorado, where I worked at the historic Rialto Theater, which I've talked about on this podcast before, for two years. And then the last six years, I've been here at KU Presents at Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. So where did the switch from Sussex County to Loveland come in there? My program was doing really well. In those seven years, I built up a great audience, um, had a really robust programming season year after year. Uh, the problem came when the housing bubble hit. Um, it really affected the, the county that we were living in, Sussex County, and there was this mass exodus of people. Um, on top of that, the number of children was, was going down just because people were having less kids those years. So it was like this double whammy that the college was having at the same time of this huge decrease in tuition um, because people were leaving the county and there were fewer and fewer graduating, smaller and smaller graduating classes. So their big decision at the time to save themselves was to bump my program out of the theater and use that as like a large classroom. Um, so they could just pay one teacher and have all the kids come at one session, you know, and save money that way. Uh, of course, that didn't work. But what it did was made me, uh, it put me out on the street and looking for another job. And so I applied to a bunch of places at that time. But Ultimately, the only position that I was able to get at that time was in Colorado, and we had to make a choice. My wife and I had a heart-to-heart. -heart. We had decided, okay, she didn't want to move, but I was going to go to Colorado, and that's where I went. And it was I always say that was the best and worst two years of my life so far. So how did the family dynamic play out while you were literally halfway across the country? It was beyond challenging, to say the least, um, because I should back up even before the year, the last year I was at Sussex County Community College, I was just about to work this really big show, uh, doing a lot of production. It was it was massive and, and taking all my time. And in the middle of this craziness, I get a call from a woman I never met saying, hi, I'm with your wife. She I found her crying behind, you know, this restaurant in town with the baby in the back and she's unresponsive and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately what came down to is she um, she had major postpartum depression. Uh, after our daughter was born and ended up going into the hospital right away. And that turned into a, a series of, you know, battling this depression, which she went in and out of the hospital quite a bit with suicide ideation. And uh, I ended up taking a year of family leave, like the maximum family leave I could to take care of my, my very young kids at the time. And then I get back <laughs> to Sussex as things were starting to smooth over and I ran out of FMLA time. And uh, that's when I get the decision, oh, we're eliminating your program. So so <laughs> we had this heart to heart when the time came. I went to Colorado. The idea was I'd go out there, test it out because the school year had already started and the kids were in school and settled, that I'd go out there for the first year, you know, and see. And if I didn't like it or if I found other work, then I'd come back home and, and do that. But if 
if everything worked out well, then the plan was for them to then move out the next summer after school was done. Um, but unfortunately, what happened was I got out there and then a, a few months later, right before Christmas, my wife got in a major car accident and um, she ended up having uh, some some serious brain damage in three parts of her brain. And from that point on, it just that Colorado was never an option. And so I stayed out there and and did the best I could to really do the best I could for the Rialto theater at that time. And once I felt like, okay, it was doing well, I can pass it on. That was, it took two years. Once I, I felt that was in a good place, I felt okay leaving. I didn't want to just have it be a stepping stone for my career. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have some integrity, you know, and, and do the best I could for the, the center. And I feel like I did that. I, I feel confident that I did that and moved on uh, to come back East. That's really admirable, Brian. And I appreciate you sharing you know, such a personal story. And I, I, I know just because we're friends, obviously that um, you and your wife are okay talking about that and are very passionate about mental health and being transparent about that and, and offering that up as an example of how you can move through situations like that. And so I just really appreciate that. And I'm quite honestly, like to balance the, the work and your want to leave the Rialto in a really strong place, but the need to be back with your family too. I can't even imagine how difficult that was, but I think it says a lot about you as a person, as an employee, as, um, a coworker as a, as a part of this industry um, and as a, as a family person too. Thanks. And I should mention too, just so people that don't know me know that I have my wife's permission and blessing to talk about this um, because we both believe that there's so much stigma and the best way to fight the stigma around mental health is to talk about it. And it was a long battle. Like a lot of people get the help and within a few months they're doing better and that's the common story. But it, it took her a long six, seven years um, she's doing great now. A lot of that was because of her brain injuries. So it's it's been all kinds of challenges, mostly for my wife. And but it, honestly, there are things that affect you know all the people around them. And I'm just I feel blessed that we had a lot of family and very close friends that were able to step in and help. And I had such a supportive supervisor and even the city. I worked for the the city of Loveland, Colorado, and they were so supportive in every way. And I was able to come home. Every single month, um, I took, you know, like a, an extra long weekend to come home and be with my family. And also, thank God for things like Skype back then. And, you know, I would help my kids with homework through Skype and helping them with their reading and like all of these things that were just very bizarre, but but it worked. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was like I said, the best and worst times of my life. You've done a lot of different things. and You had several different roles. Let's talk a little bit about your marketing experience. So you fell in love with marketing. You ended up kind of moving out of the arts, doing marketing professionally in New York, and then you came back. So I'm curious as to how that experience in marketing now informs your programming philosophy as a presenter um, and what kind of experiences from that time in your life you're bringing into the presenting world. Sure. And I'm not going to give a marketing lesson right now, but I do want to say a lot of people have this misconception thinking that marketing means advertising. And advertising is part of marketing. It's under this big umbrella of marketing, but it's like one sixth of what marketing is. And honestly, what, what I loved about marketing in the beginning, what hooked me right from the beginning, it's a science. If you go for a degree in it, you're going to get a science degree, not an arts degree in marketing because it's really about social sciences. It's about studying and using data. And I was very much into database marketing, what's known as database marketing. Now a lot of analytics are done 
through um, through AI and a lot of programs and things. But back in the day, um, we did a lot of things through capturing, like figuring out how to capture the data and how to manipulate the data and analyze it to get to know people. And you're sort of trying to build relationships with your customers. That's what it basically all comes down to. That's what marketing is at its center, you know, it's based in trying to develop strong relationships with your customers. And so whether that's through the advertising or through other means, that's what it comes down to. And that, of course, just like theater, you're trying to make a connection with people through stories and other things. And, and I think that's why marketing, if I had gone and taken another type of business class, I probably wouldn't have had like that magic spark that hit me with like marketing did. Since it's so relationship based, right, in your experience and kind of your marketing philosophy, um, how does that translate into your programming philosophy? Exactly, Katie. That's They're both about relationships, building relationships. And so in my programming approach, it's really about connecting with my patrons. And in this case, it's not just my regular patrons. When I came to Kutztown University, we had a very robust um, subscriber base. You know, they would buy a year subscription to all of the shows. And that was who we, we kind of catered towards. And then, and they filled almost half the house. So then we just had to kind of find the other half through a little bit of extra marketing here and there based on whatever the show was. That had been slowly changing, but then the pandemic came and it really just knocked that down to where it's like an eighth of our audience is now subscribers. And so it's completely changed the paradigm, which in some ways is great because now I can try to build a relationship with the full community, which is what I always wanted to do and serve as many people in the community as I can. Whereas before I had to really focus on these people that always came and make them happy because we need them to support half the house. So, so we don't have to sell as much. And the problem that I'm really facing now is because, because of the model that we started with, we never really had a robust marketing budget. In fact, we practically have no marketing budget. And so we're still in that same case. Now we're in this new paradigm and we still have that same issue with no marketing budget, but yet now we have to market to the full community. So it's something that we're trying. I don't have the full answer yet, but we are luckily finding some partners that are helping us reach people in a different way and not just the same people over and over again. That's fascinating that how much your audience has changed and how much that informs the tactics that you're using now. So when when you shifted from a career in marketing to a career in the arts, what was the biggest learning curve for you in in making that shift from corporate marketing strategy to arts presenting? Um, I, I actually started in the arts, went to, to the corporate side, and then came back to the arts. So I kind of had a really strong base, particularly on the things that happened on and behind the stage. Where I was falling behind or where I had to catch up, I should say, when I went back as an arts administrator was how do I find out where you book shows? Where do I find out about shows? We were a new theater when I was at Sussex County Community College. So we hadn't gotten on the radar of all the agents and all the artists and things where they get the lists now and send it out and get tons of email every day. Back then I had to like search and I was trying to find ways to get this information. And I didn't know about conferences. I didn't know about state consortiums. I didn't know about any of that stuff. And I, I felt very alone and, and on this island. And I reached out, I looked up some of the theaters that were like in Northern New Jersey with me, reached out to them just saying, Hey, I'm in a new performing arts center. Uh, you know, if you have a chance, I'd love to talk with you. And, you know, I, I was trying to look for a mentor, if you will, or just some guidance and nobody, every single one that I reached out to were like, Oh, we, why would we talk to you? You know, they just had that. Can we have a list of names? <laughs> I will keep that to my best, but, um, you know, just everyone I reached out to, 
just didn't want to share with me. And so I, I felt even more alone on the island. Somehow, I don't even remember how, but I found out about APAP. That was the first like arts anything that I found out about. And luckily, I was allowed to go because um, we never had any budget for any kind of conferences. But somehow I was able to go to my first APAP, I think it was 2008, after having this experience of, oh, everyone is like out for themselves, that that's how I thought the whole thing was. So that's how I approached my first APAP was, you know, oh, I've got to got to keep all my my cards to myself and and, you know, battle everyone for the best deal. But at least I found where to book things, you know. So that experience of being kind of on that island, being alone, um, is that one of the reasons that you took on the role as president of the Pennsylvania Presenters Network? And, you know, does that experience kind of inform how you now lead that state consortium? Yeah, I mean, actually, it goes back before I never really intended to be the president. Um, that sort of happened by being asked to do that. And I after thinking, I was like, sure, I'll do it. But I, I believe in state consortiums. I believe in things like, you know, the APAP all year programming. I believe in the PLC meetings and, and concert and all these places that that arts professionals like us can get together and talk um, to one another, even if we're not just getting together to book and do like direct business, just to be able to share things with each other. I, I realized like once I got out of that bubble in New Jersey, after a couple of years, I found my people that were willing to share all over the country and, you know, started getting involved in different things. And I found how valuable it was to me to, not only the things that I learned, but just even because I felt like I was in this island, I was able to talk with other people that knew what I was talking about and what I've gone through, where anybody I worked with, they just couldn't relate because it was so different from everything else that was happening on the college scene. Now that I'm in the place where I am to help foster those conversations and those connections any way I can, um, you know, throughout, whether it's through PA presenters or any other group that I'm involved in. And you've taken on some other leadership roles in the industry too, right? You um, do some affinity group work for APAP. APAP started an affinity called uh, Small and Mid-Sized Presenters, SAMPs is what they call them. I think it was Krista Bradley approached me from APAP to see if I'd be interested in moderating uh, one of the SAMPs things early on in the pandemic. And I think it's because I had been doing a lot of moderating with um, PD sessions and things online for PA presenters at that point. And so I did that and I had a really good time and they, they just kept coming back. And I, you know, even to this day, I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to hog this. Like, I don't think I should be just the only face for, for Sam. So I'm happy to be involved in it, but so they appreciate that. And so we've had other people come and no, no one's wanted to like just solely do it. So I've, I've co-hosted that role with a bunch of people, but then they're, you know, they do it and then move on. And so, um, so I'm still involved pretty heavily in SAMPs, which I enjoy. I love the affinity. There's several other groups like that, too, with APAP and others that that I get involved with, too. And it, and it goes back to what I was saying before about just it's really about helping foster the connections and helping people grow or develop or learn things that they can't otherwise when they're alone on their island, wherever they live or work. I sit in some of those uh meetings with you because I do a little bit of work with APAP too, Brian. And I really do appreciate like just how thoughtful you are in those conversations. And I, I watch you sometimes kind of sit back and take it all in. And then you come in with this like <laughs> brilliant point and I'm like, Oh, Brian for the win. Like, <laughs> so I really do. I, I don't appreciate know how brilliant it. is, but I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that about you. And I, I think it says a lot about you that an organization like APAP taps you for those sorts of moderation or leadership opportunities. Um, and that consistency, I think says a lot about you in your demeanor and how you lead conversations and, and how thoughtful you are in that way. So I just think that's a really cool part of kind of what you do outside your like day-to-day -day responsibilities. 
Well, thank you. So Brian, I want to circle back to something. You said whenever you came to APAP the first time that you that you came in with that adversarial approach mm-hmm. that everybody's out for themselves. Was there ever like a, a single like aha moment or something that shifted you to think differently about the arts admin profession and how you conducted yourself within that profession. I went in with this attitude and, you know, they would make statements like, oh, it's great. You know, we're this really big family. It's so great to be back together. And I'm like, really? You know, and I'm, I'm just feeling like it looked like clicks to me and it wasn't, but that's what it felt like at first. And then I show up a little while later on that first day to the new colleagues session. I sit at the table of Martha Woods from Wentworth Associates. It was great talking to those people at the table, but what I really appreciate probably the most, which again, I've talked about this before, is that she challenged us after that to go during the the social event that happens after the the opening plenary to go up to just go up to 10 random people and introduce yourself. And it terrified me to do that. That's what started to kind of chip away at the armor that I that I entered with, Um, because I instantly met some really amazing and interesting people. And the thing that I kept finding was that they were open and warm. And no matter who they were or what their reason for being at APAP was, they were just willing to talk to me and share whatever it is that we started talking about. And so that that was the beginning. I still had that armor for that first APAP for the whole, the whole thing, uh, especially when I got into the expo hall. I have to go back to that first experience with Martha and how that really helped me start to open up. Has there been like a singular experience or an aha moment that changed how you think about the arts or how you participate in the industry? My thinking has changed, but I... I wouldn't call it an aha moment because it really was a progression over time, essentially getting at that we're an ecosystem that I'm not just on this, you know, I'd show up at a new performing arts center. Okay. I've got to book the shows. I'm going to do this really amazing season that it's never been like this before and have these artists that never been here before. And I'm going to just really wow the patrons and blah, blah, blah. And really when you step back to like the really far look and you see that my season really isn't so different from many others, what's different is how you approach it and how you work these deals and having the, again, relationships with people and not just the people you book the shows with. That's very important. And I'm glad that that's changed in my life too. And from the adversarial to, okay, now I really like have, like doing business with these people because I really like these people. Like they're good people and they, they have great shows, but they're also really honest and upfront and transparent and, and willing to work with me and vice versa. And I'm willing, I love working with them and, and doing the best I can for them too and their artists. But it's really about having the relationships with the community too. When I first started, I not right away because I didn't get help right away, but eventually I did meet a presenter also in New Jersey that, you know, I had questions about, oh, how do you put your seasons together? How do you go about that and planning? And I was asking, you know, do you, do you have advisory committees? Do you have to pass it by this person, whatever? And they were like, no, I'm the curator. And so they hire me because I have good tastes and, and whatever. And if they don't like it, then they'll get rid of me. And so, but I, I choose what's best for what the, what I think the community needs. I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I started to follow down that path and I'm glad I got away from that. And now, you know, we use curatorial a lot and it's not a bad word, but because of that experience, like I kind of like cringe at that word. I, I kind of look at that as elitist and whatnot. So I know it's not in most cases how people use it. So I'm not trying to say when other people use it, that's how they are. But that's why I don't call my or consider myself a curator because again, just 
to jump ahead because we don't have time to get into all the details. But essentially, I've learned that, no, I need to have a conversation with the community. I need to see what they want, need. I need them to tell me what they're, what they're missing, what they're needing, what they're wanting to learn. Um, and then I'll find answers to those questions and things and present that. And I'll get feedback from them after I do have shows. And, you know, it's really this ecosystem all the way around um, and not just me saying, oh, this is important. You need to see this, you know? Yes, there's important things that maybe they don't know about that I, I do bring, but it's based on a bunch of other things. So collaboration over curation. Exactly, yes. Have you ever gotten pushback for sort of that philosophy or that model that like, because it sounds like you really try and find a balance between like, and I don't love these words either, but like high art and low art and what your community is asking for and yes, kind of like yes. what's available, you know, like really great, mm -hmm. you know, inspirational things, right? And, you know, or things that they wouldn't, maybe your community wouldn't otherwise, like you said, like know about or, or think are interesting. So there's like a fine line, a fine balance in that. So have you ever gotten pushback? Yeah. So I do have an advisory committee internally as well that I've worked with. And when I first started here, not to say anything bad about them, but there was this certain notion about quality, what quality meant. And that's another one of those words that I've really come to learn, okay, not to get in on this big soapbox, but essentially, well, who determines... Go there, Brian, go there. You know, who determines what quality is? What it comes down to that I'm finding is it's all culturally based. And most of what we determine what's made the basis or the foundation of what the quality is comes from you know, a very classical European base. And it leaves out so many other ways to look at art or experience art and other things. So I've really tried to say, well, what is quality? It's, it's whatever that audience determines it is, not what I determine it is. And, you know, I'm going to have my own tastes and my own things that I'll like better than other things. But it doesn't mean that I can't bring in something that, you know, isn't within my taste that other people that my audience will find as quality. So part of that, too, is there's this, this sort of elitist attitude about certain things such as um, tribute shows or or people who aren't the original creators of the music there. And yes, there's some very hacky groups and other people that are just out there trying to find a quick buck by doing that. But there's so many true artists that that's the way that they express their art is by reproducing or performing other people's stuff. And so there is a difference. And and just trying to help people understand not to box themselves in like, oh, we don't do this. You know, it's like, well, why? You know, <laughs> like just asking the question. Yeah, I do get pushback, but I also I, I also try to find ways to work with that to to help people kind of discover that. There's more than just one way to look at that. That was one of my early follies as a presenter was I was in that same mindset of, oh, tribute bands are below us. We're thinking that in this rural community setting that we're in with the Marion Cultural and Civic Center that, that we need to be delivering high art here because nobody else is. The other thing that I've learned in being here is that we're one of many venues in, in a certain region. Our audience goes to several different venues. You know, we're not the only game in town. And so I, I'm also constantly looking at what makes us unique, what makes us complement the other venues and stand out sometimes. Um, so a lot of them, there are a lot of opportunities to see tribute acts and things all around me. So that's why I'm not really going down that avenue. But I just wanted to kind of open up minds to say, let's not ever say we don't do that because there needs to be a reason other than just one person's thought of like, oh, that's not quality because it, that's not necessarily always true. And that's what I was trying to get at. 
I love that idea of working like in concert and next to and beside, you know, the, the other organizations in your town versus having that mindset of like direct competition. So it sounds like you've kind of, you really kind of focus on like, what is our niche? Like you said, what's unique about us and are conscious of not trying to step on toes or not trying to steal someone else's market share, right? Because there's, there's audience enough. Um, so do you ever have conversations with your counterparts at other institutions in terms of like, Hey, so you guys have this coming up. I was thinking about X, Y, and Z, like, or not double booking something or talk radius clauses. Like, do you ever have those conversations? Yeah. So, um, it's been really great. My predecessor is Robin Zaremski. She's a presenter now down at, uh, in Lancaster at Millersville, University, one of our sister institutions, she approached me and said, Hey, I don't want to insert myself or force anything if you're not comfortable, but just know I'm always happy to, to chat with you. If you ever want to reach out, ask me anything or talk about anything, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to do that. And so I took her up and said, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, thank you for doing that. And I've got, you know, we've gotten to know each other really well. And she's, she's been a great ally with, of mine in terms of booking. She's brought shows to me and we've, we've booked the same shows in the same season before. Um, and then also we know of, he was a guest on our, our podcast, Mark Wilson, who's on the other side of me in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, in fact, we both have Sugar Skull coming this, this September and, you know, and we're very close. Like we're, we're within a half hour of each other and we found a way that it will work for both of us and not quote unquote compete or, or steal audiences from one another. And so I think the pandemic has helped a lot of that too. Um, people seem to be more open to people that have been involved in, in discussions throughout the pandemic about this and, and realizing it, it is an ecosystem and so on and so forth. You know, I think there's more people, more of us out there that are open to those types of discussions and communications and, and trying things together instead of just saying, oh, well, I've got it, or I'm going to win. I've, I'm going to book this show. So you can't. I, what I love about that is that what you're describing is an abundance mindset. Um, there's a, you know, there's a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset and the scarcity mindset really fosters a lot of competitive thought and a lot of adversarial business practices. Whereas an abundance mindset where you, it's, Hey, we're all going to, to have audience if we work together. Uh, it really works well. I love that, that terminology. And I have to give a hat tip to the Rocky mountain arts consortium. And in, in particular, Jack Rogers uh, from the Lincoln Center in Fort Collins, uh, Fort Collins and Loveland, Colorado, are sister cities that had grown so much, they'd sprawled into each other and overlap. And so he had the big venue. So anything that he was interested in, I figured, oh, I can't even look at or touch. But we started having these regular lunches together and started helping each other, which was really amazing. And of course, we had the Rocky Mountain Arts Consortium, and they have that abundance mindset. And within the city of Loveland, I learned a lot of that, too. It just was I, I learned the more arts opportunities there are and the more sharing, like the stronger the whole community got and the strong, like the larger the audiences at each of the events became. And just it just became a better art scene all around for everybody. So. Um, yeah, that's really instilled in, and that goes back to my time in Colorado. Those, those short two years were hugely, hugely impactful. I love that story. And I love that example of the abundance created from the abundance mindset and that art facilitated art. Yeah. Um, that's and that's absolutely wonderful. Let's jump in a little bit of a different direction. Brian, what is something that neither Katie or myself know about you? You guys know a lot because I overshare and that's one yeah, of my gas bubbles and all, but yeah. Um, but okay, here's here. This has nothing to do. It's probably not good for the podcast, but I'll share it with you guys. <laughs> so 
I've never told anybody this, but I work two hours away from home and I take a paid high, a toll highway home um, just to avoid Allentown and all that crazy traffic. Now that the whole highway is like just automatic, there's no people. But when I first started working here, there were tolls with actual people that you had to pay the toll to, but I had an easy pass. So this one exit that I can get off, which is closer to my house was easy pass only there was no people and they take a picture i noticed the the flash you know they take a picture every time you do it like early on one day i just decided to make a face when i go through there and then the next day i made a different face and over time i had challenged myself because i also here's the other thing is i heard stories about oh if you speed you know through the toll or whatever they'll they'll take a picture they'll send a picture of you and blah 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 and give you a ticket and so i started speeding through it on purpose <laughs> making a different face or pose i mean they, they got pretty elaborate for almost a whole year trying not to ever duplicate it was i challenged myself never duplicate a pose and like there were times i was dangerous like i had i wore my sweatshirt on backwards i had a hoodie and like i put it up over my face right in time i do the peace sign you know whatever i just tried so many different things and a ticket never came and i was like i i just kept imagining like hey someday some person's going to be like wow this car has gotten like 50 speeding tickets through the same toll and then see the picture and like oh wait this picture and this picture. and then it would eventually like you know get known and people would laugh get a good laugh out of it but it never happened so after about a year i stopped because i was having such a hard time coming up with new poses <laughs> spend your entire day figuring out what you're gonna do with that i know it's not what you were looking for no it's great that was amazing I love it that's amazing okay so kevin likes to do gotcha questions uh and so i have a gotcha question for you brian <laughs> You're not supposed to tell me it's a gotcha question. <laughs> yeah, but go ahead. Defeated the purpose already. <laughs> but you don't know what I'm going to ask you. So in the vein of Kevin, our friend Kevin Maynard, how in the world did you learn to build a time machine? Gotcha. Honestly, it just came to me from the future. So it's one of those weird loops in the time-space continuum. So you didn't actually build it. You just discussed, like found it one day? I mean, he could have built it. Future Brian could have built it and sent it back. I mean, it's all irrelevant now because Danielle lost the thing. So, or jo according to Josh, it was trashed. According to Danielle, uh, according to Kevin, it was sold. But either way, I don't have it anymore. So, hmm. I wonder where it is. Well, then we're gonna have to take a metaphorical uh, trip back in time. Um, there are two different moments that I that I'd like to to get your advice on to yourself. One is when you're leaving marketing world and going into presenting world, what would be your initial advice to yourself? The piece of advice I would tell myself is stop trying to be what you think people want you to be, but to be yourself and to really be yourself and not be afraid of that. Don't be afraid to show your silliness. Don't be afraid when you don't know something to say, Hey, I don't know. I'll, you know, I, I'll look into it, but I don't know. You know, I, I just felt such pressure that I had to be, the expert and be on and have everything be perfect and and to present myself in a professional quote unquote way and and nowadays i've let it all go and i'm i just i would never have been like this before but like we just had laura benanti my last show here uh this last spring before you know before the season ended and i came out to do my curtain speech like normal and the audience just was like so not there like they were just kind of in la la land and and didn't even pay attention to me and i was like and I just kind of jumped out of my script and I, I didn't know what, what I was going to do or what I was, what was going to happen, but I just went with it. And I said, Oh, are, are we okay? You know, do we need to talk? <laughs> I sat at the, at the lip of the stage and I was like, all right, all right, let's, let's get it out. What, what, 
what do we need to talk about? And, and, you know, more and more people started laughing and it started to grow and the, the energy of the audience changed. I'm like, sure, nobody, nobody has any, we're good. You know? And so I stood up, I was like, all right, I'm always here for you if you need to talk. You know? And, and I won them over. And then I went on with my thanking the sponsors and blah, blah, blah. But like my former self would never, ever in a million years do something silly like that especially in front of an audience. And the president of the university is sitting, you know, he comes to every show, he's sitting right there, you know, all of these big wig people that I would never act that way in front of anybody. But I, I now tell myself, no, just go with your gut, be who you are. And that's who I was. And it was funny because um, the show happened and Laura was amazing. Afterwards, you know, I walked Laura out to her, her Uber and said goodbye to her. And then I went back in the building and then she like knocked on the door and came back in and she specifically left the Uber to come back in to tell me, oh my God, I almost forgot. That was the most amazing curtain speech ever. And I was like, oh, thank you. She's like, no, thank you. She's like, you won, you turned the energy of that room around. And I am so appreciative. Like that was just so funny. I was like, oh, thank you. And then she headed out. But that, that was the validation I needed. I, you know, that kind of gave me the wings like, okay. Cause I was questioning like, what did I just do? And mm -hmm. I was like, no. When you're yourself, you get the rewards that that you're supposed to have, yeah. and um, and people appreciate it. You know, appreciate you more because you're yourself. That's a phenomenal story, Brian. So the next point I want to take you back to is when you're moving to Colorado and you're about to kind of get into learning how to be a father and to be a husband from across the country. What advice would you have for yourself there? <laughs> it's hard because. I can't go back and change anything. And, and I'm glad I can't in a way because I needed to do that time. I needed to learn a lot about my professional self there and what it's like to work for people that are amazing to work for, that support you in every way that you need, that encourage you, lift you up and teach you and just make you feel safe to, to even try things, experiment, to make mistakes and it's okay. So it was the most amazing professional experience ever. And, and up until then, I've always saw people, you know, kind of almost in an adversarial role. Also, the people that I would report to, you know, were just so far above me, and I had to always please them and that it just opened up my mind. So but now like the that was such the hardest personal thing to ever live with to be so far away from my kids, you know, and not see them every single day. I cried almost daily. My roommates will tell you, um, I, I had to force myself on my days off to get up, get dressed, take you know, take a shower, get dressed and leave the house. I wouldn't know where I was going. I would just drive into the mountains and explore somewhere new because it would just keep my mind busy. Otherwise, I, the other alternative is I literally would stay in bed and cry all day. If I were put in that position, I never want to be in that position again to be away from my kids. So I would probably tell myself, don't do it. Get a job at the mall because it was so heartbreaking to be away from them. Again, I'm glad I had that professional experience, but I never want to even think about going through that experience again. That would be something that my former self would have to go through. And I don't want any part of that, even reliving it. So we always close with our favorite question. I think you know what it is, Brian. Um, so we've talked so much about how you've grown and changed and all the aspects of your career. But what is your favorite part about being in the industry today in this moment? Whoa, I didn't know you were going to ask that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I came from left field. Wow. Unexpected over here. Just unexpected. <laughs> it feels cliche to say it at this point because so many people had this answer, but it's the people. I think that's pretty obvious. I love being with arts people. I just love whether it's the artists, the agents, the 
presenters, whether it's in a professional setting or a professional development session, whether it's connecting people, whether it's, you know, hosting something that that brings professionals to the forefront and their ideas, or if it's presenting a show or, you know, whatever it is, I just, if I'm with people like you guys, like right now, just being in this, I would prefer to be in person, but just getting to hang out with you guys for this little bit of time, it, it makes my day. I just love being with arts people. Well, Brian, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. I really enjoyed learning more about your story. Thanks, Josh, for co-hosting with me. This was super, super fun. And uh, I like our little trio. This is a good group. I enjoyed this. <laughs> Gas bubble. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. It's been fun. Oh, well, thanks so much, Josh and Katie, for um, sitting down with Brian. It was awesome to learn so much more about him because I realized there was so much I didn't already know. And it kind of blew my mind that you had a history um, in a non-arts world. And the thought of you just as like a marketing executive kind of blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. Kevin. I didn't know that at all. I mean, I I think maybe just because of like how we were introduced, I just assume that you had always been in the arts and like every story that I've heard you tell and the things that have like have always been like either somewhere like arts adjacent or something there. So I just, I was very surprised. And I can see that in like the way that you were talking about your work um, specifically like coming back post pandemic with a subscriber base, not being quite as strong. And that's definitely something that, um, I've heard from, you know, many other colleagues in the field with the subscriber basis, but most people see that as like a really major challenge or hurdle to get over. And you just seem so optimistic about the opportunity of like finally now getting to market to and program for your whole community rather than the space that's been cultivated for so many years. And yeah, it's, it's a really great way to look at it. And it is a great opportunity, but I don't know that somebody that doesn't have that strong of a marketing background would necessarily go to that right away because I mean, it's a hard thing to do. To add to that, I, I really enjoyed that approach of the, of the community programming of reaching out to your community to do that. Like I, I know we've talked about that multiple times on this podcast and about the importance of that, but I also really appreciated your conversation about, you know, the word curator and sort of that elite, like that elitist feeling to that. Um, but specifically the conversation around quality. I mean, we talk about quality all the time here and it's, you know, not in like a positive light um, because what we have learned is that quality is, is a way for people on our committees to gatekeep and to keep certain styles of art out and to say like, oh, like this isn't, you know, the type of art that we do, like this isn't fine art. Um, but the reality is, is like it is in the eye of the beholder. And like some of those things are really great access points to communities. So, you know, they might be something that, you know, maybe your main subscriber base thinks is, you know, quote unquote, beneath them, but it's a way to interact with a community that might not come into the theater otherwise, um, or come into your space otherwise. And so like, I think that there are, you know, opportunities for all styles. And so I, I love that conversation. I really appreciated, you know, talking about tribute bands, because I'll be honest, like I was that guy early on that was like, oh, we don't do tribute bands. Like, yeah. So I just really, really enjoyed that. And knowing that that is that conversation is happening in other places as well. Brian, I have a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about. I, I programmed something on our family season, maybe two seasons ago now, um, as we were just kind of like coming back. And I think some people would probably be like, oh, that's like B plus level sort of entertainment, right? But it had tons of 
audience interaction. It was really multi-dimensional in, a, in its presentation and product. And literally 20% of ticket holders, ticket buyers had never bought a ticket to our venue before. And I had a suspicion that this was going to be the case. Like we we're going to bring in some new people just because it was so different from everything else that we do. So I had uh, Nicole run the numbers and literally 20% of our audience had never purchased a ticket. That's huge. That's to amazing. Yeah. Our venue. And I just think it is a perfect demonstration of what you just said, Kevin, like access point and presenting things or bringing things in that you don't necessarily do all the time that are going to appeal to a different, wider audience. And it's very accessible, very colorful, very um, family friendly. But we had people of all ages, all generations standing on their feet, going up on the stage. Like it was a really beautiful thing to see. I know some of my colleagues didn't love it. But I loved it because 20% of my audience was brand new to our facility. Um, and I thought that was a huge win. And there's truly something to say about like you're all saying is bringing in your full community. And even though it, some of the people think that it's something different and something below what you usually bring in, when it appeals to other people and you bring in an audience for it and an audience shows up for it, that speaks to its legitimacy for your community. Brian, I also want to just thank you and, you know, applaud your vulnerability and your openness in that interview. I mean, to talk about some some topics that, I, you know, for a lot of people may be very difficult to, but, you know, as as you pointed out, like having these conversations um, has the potential to help other people to sort of normalize some of those difficulties. Yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of nice to to hear that talked about in that way of just like, yeah, like this is what happened. And, you know, these are these are the struggles and that it's a very real thing that more people than, you know, just your family are, are dealing with. Yeah, and in all transparency, it's been some time now. My wife, as I mentioned, is doing so much better and it's easier to talk about it now in hindsight. Looking back when that was happening, I know we were both like embarrassed. We were you know, afraid of what people would think or how that would affect relationships. And, and, uh, but as we learned more about things in the mental health world and got professional help from therapists, it just opened our eyes to a lot more of, of how important it is to, to be, you know, it's more prevalent than people realize. And the reason why it, no one knows it because people don't talk about it. And, and I, we just feel it needs to be normalized because it is really something normal. It, it happens and affects so many people. Yeah. And I, and I also, you know, sort of applaud you for the conversation about, you know, being in Colorado, like being away from your family, like that honesty about the struggles of that. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've heard you talk about your time in Colorado. Like I did not know that it was that difficult. I always knew that that would be difficult for me to leave my family, but I just didn't know like the levels of that. I mean, it really brings to light for, for people in the presenting world, what long-term touring really looks like for people too. And that long-term touring for anybody with a family is going away from your family for a month at a time. Yeah, and I just got a taste of two years of it. I mean, there's people that tour for 20, 30 years. I can't even imagine. Brian, I also loved your story about Laura Benanti and uh, the curtain speech that you gave oh God, and your yes. advice about being your genuine self. And uh, listeners, if you remember back to our holiday episode, actually, this was something that you mentioned when we chatted then and something you wanted to continue working on. And I just personally, as your friend and your colleague, I think I've seen immense growth in you. And I'm so glad that you feel so much more comfortable 
in your own skin now yeah, and you, you could you could do that and to have an artist like laura recognize that and like be great like i just think that says so much about you and i really love that and i think it's a testament to like the power of actually being your genuine self and i do feel like as professionals right professional culture really says don't do that um, mm-hmm. no matter what field you're in right don't be your genuine self always have a mask on always be stand up straight and you know, put everything else out of your mind when you're in the office or, you know, you're working with others, but that level of, um, genuineness that you bring to your work, I think, especially now is really admirable. And I really love that about you. Thank you. Literally. It's been kind of like playing in my mind how I could be better at curtain speeches to, to really engage with the audience as opposed to just be up there reciting stuff in front of them. Like, and, and so like, I, I, I have no idea how, I, how to do that yet, but that's been in the back of my mind ever since that story. Well, I just want to compare Brian's uh, curtain speech to one I once gave in, uh, before a youth theater show, The Fearsome Pirate Frank, where I came out and had it like I did a pirate accent <laughs> and had an eye patch on and like the whole thing. So not quite sure it was as good as Brian's, but maybe the, my favorite curtain speech I've ever given. <laughs> you should do that one for your next show. <laughs> I've got pirates of Penzance coming. Pirates or not, just I'll have to steal oh, it. oh my gosh, yes, please do go. it for that one. Perfect. <laughs> but piggybacking on what Katie said, um, I need to see those silly toll pictures that Me you too. Took. I'd love to see them oh, myself. My and I didn't even mention I brought props. I brought my my daughter's dolls one day and set up like a whole tea party on my dashboard. Like I, I really went all out. Dude, I was rolling listening to that story. Like I could, oh. Uh, I feel like there's nothing more genuine about Brian than that story. Like that just is you. I love it so much. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today for this conversation with our good friend, Brian. We really enjoyed having you all with us and hope that you learned a little bit more about why we all love Brian Zilmer. So we'll see you next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Yeah, I mean, sort of to piggyback on that. I mean, honestly, I just, I, I loved hearing that approach. I know we've talked about this. Uh, what is that face? <laughs> I can't piggyback on me. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's really getting it from all sides today. <laughs> oh, we lost Kevin. He's not he's not good for the next 10 minutes. I was... <laughs> oh man. Actually, where is the time machine right Nobody now? Nobody knows. I I put out some posters. Fucking sold it. I told you. I have a reward poster out, so hopefully that gets some information. <laughs> We're gonna need an APP. <laughs> the thing that I'm worried about is that Kevin went rogue and sold it. <laughs> Ha <laughs> 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 <laughs>